What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias here with Keith Phipps, Tasha Robinson, and Genevieve Kosky. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we ain't afraid of no ghosts, but we're a little freaked out by the politics of busting them. Genevieve. Can you tell us more about our pairing? Sure. Paul Feig's gender-reversed version of Ghostbusters has somehow sparked more controversy than any film this summer. Future cultural historians will surely wonder why people got this upset over a silly comedy about four professional ghost wranglers setting up shop in New York City. And yet here we are, stuck in an ugly fight over issues of nostalgia, misogyny, race, representation, and activism. All over a movie that mostly wants to show us a good time. So what is it about the original 1984 Ghostbusters that's inspired such strong feeling? This week, we'll look at the two Ghostbusters side by side and see what all the fuss is about. Has this become a disaster of biblical proportions? Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Uh, With that terrible Bill Murray impression out of the way, I must say that I've been looking forward to getting some perspective on the Ghostbusters debacle among friends here at Delmark Records and talking about the old and new Ghostbusters as movies, which the conversation around them has kept us from doing. Today, we'll talk about Ivan Reitman's version with Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis, and Ernie Hudson. Then later in the week, we'll bring in Paul Feig's version with Kristen Wiig, Melissa McCarthy, Kate McKinnon, and Leslie Jones. One is the gatekeeper, one is the key master, and together, they're a podcast episode. Come in, Ray. Hitman! I saw it, I saw it, I saw it! It's right here, Ray. It's looking at me. He's an ugly little spud, isn't he? I think he can hear you, Ray. Don't move! It won't hurt you! Ah! Me. That's great! Actual physical contact! Can you move? Ray, Ray, come in, please. I feel so funky. Spengler, I'm with Bankman. Oh. You got slime! That's great, Ray. Save some for me. In the debate over the new Ghostbusters, the phrase, ruining my childhood, has been uttered to describe why this mid-80s blockbuster is somehow sacred writ. So I've been trying to think about why kids of that era, boys especially, have such a strong connection to the movie. I was two months away from my 13th birthday when the Ghostbusters came out, and I remember seeing it at a four-screen theater in Toledo, Ohio, the same weekend Top Secret and Gremlins were released. It was a difficult summer for me because it was my last in my hometown of Perrysburg, Ohio, before moving to the Atlanta suburb of Marietta, Georgia, away from my older siblings and my friends. So basically, I'm in the sweet spot for Ghostbusters nostalgia. And while I don't cling to that movie nearly as much as other men my age, I still like Top Secret and Gremlins better, in fact, I have been thinking about why it was so special at the time and why younger generations might not connect to it in the same way. And here's the reason. Ghostbusters did not exist before 1984. I once knew a world without Ghostbusters, which is something a person born within the last 30 years cannot say. And really, there was simply nothing like it at the time. Though Jaws is considered the first blockbuster, the blockbuster era didn't kick off in earnest until the 80s, and the idea of doing a special effects comedy on the scale of Ghostbusters was largely unprecedented. Steven Spielberg had tried his hand at a big-budget comedy with 1941, but that movie was more a cautionary tale than a step forward. There was no suggestion that a comedy and effects-driven spectacle could work without one taking away from the other. Looking at Ghostbusters now, it's hard to appreciate it as the original film it was in 1984, because it doesn't have the shock of the new. I don't remember much about seeing it as a 12-year-old going on 13, 
but I do remember being wowed more by the ghost-busting part than the comedy. The Slimers, the stop-motion beasts, the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. It wasn't until later, when I had a greater appreciation for Bill Murray's wry deadpan commentary, that it registered as a comedy. But that's just me. Here at the Next Picture Show, we're all about trying to find perspective on old movies and context for new movies, and the original Ghostbusters is a fascinating case study. How Ghostbusters looked in 1984 is strikingly different from how it looks in 2016, when large-scale comedies are more the rule than the exception. And for that matter, how Ghostbusters might be remembered by those of us who saw it at the time, Tasha, Keith, and myself, and those of us who caught it much later, Genevieve, won't likely be the same. So let's just let's start with the then and now question. What was your first experience with Ghostbusters, and how does it contrast with the way you see it now, Tasha Robinson? Well, like you, I saw it when I was a teenager. I saw it in the theaters, and I, I mean, I remember being really taken with it. Mm-hmm. I was I was into science fiction and fantasy and all that nerd stuff, and this was a a big screen nerd movie with a lot of big screen nerd stuff going on. So I remember having like really fond feelings about it that had pretty much nothing to do with a comedy. Like I didn't mm-hmm. I I've always kind of had a thing with Bill Murray where he just doesn't connect with me. His his sarcasm and his dismissiveness, his smugness, his superiority. And here you actually kind of in, are introduced to him being smarmy and smug and really kind of creepy and gross over a girl who wasn't that much older than I was at the time, um, early on with the whole psychic thing, where he's pretending that she's psychic in order to get in her pants. So mm, I just... Wait, wait a minute, what? <laughs> he would never. <laughs> did, you, did you guys rewatch this movie? <laughs> just checking. Um, so I didn't connect to him personally, but like the laugh lines made me laugh, and the, like, the, the big monster stuff I really loved. But... One of the things that I think cemented Ghostbusters for me was not very long after that, uh, a lot of the effects came, I'm pretty sure, to one of the National Smithsonian uh, museums. I don't remember exactly which one or, or what the circumstances were, but I was growing up in that area and we went to the Smithsonian lot. And I got to see the model of the the building that Gozer lands on top of and various like special effects things showing how uh, the clouds over it were made by dropping ink into water. Um, just what some of the models looked like. So for me, it was like it was a really seminal, like original experience with understanding how movies were made mm-hmm. and getting really excited about special effects and movie magic. So I mean, it was just it was a special movie for me in a couple of different ways that really had nothing to do with with the specific one-liners and like the memorable quotes. Yeah, I mean, I think that was again. I said that in the in the keynote. I had the same experience. I think I was really taken with it as an effects-driven spectacle more than I was with it as a, a comedy and I, I actually remember being scared by it i mean it's got a couple of little jumps if you're a, if you're you know 12 year old mm-hmm. um oh, what about you keith loved it i mean i really loved it uh at the time i still like it a lot it's a great movie but yeah i was like 11 when this came out and, and i think it was early on for me a lot of converging interests like like i had it was probably my first real significant exposure to bill murray dan Aykroyd, and definitely Howard, harold ramus Oh, and Ernie Hudson for that matter too. But everyone but, forgets about Ernie Hudson. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's really good in, this, good in this movie too. But yeah, he's 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 the forgotten Ghostbuster in many ways. But uh, so it was that, and like I think Murray in particular, sort of the you know sardonic, smarter than anyone else. You know, there's there's a certain aspirational qualities, I guess, if you're if you're a kid who's never going to be the star athlete. Maybe there's something else you could aspire to. You know, but and also an early horror. You know, was, you know, it was a horror movie that I could see as an 11 year old, and it would not. Uh, scare me that much and and uh, uh, you know it works as a big scale special effects thing but it was really it was really the comedy I connected to though it was funny you know it was, you could trade one liners with your friends and and uh, I think I saw it know, two or three times that summer and that was a really good summer wasn't it you know when you mentioned it was <laughs> well, I mean, that, that, that weekend alone uh, was a lot, a, lot of, a lot of good stuff yeah exactly but no I'm, I'm very fond of, of this uh, of this movie as well um, Genevieve, we had a different experience because you are you are younger than we are. Yes, but I'm I'm going to talk about my experience by by poking a little hole in your your theory okay. here that uh, you guys uh, can remember a world without Ghostbusters, and I'm going to talk about my boyfriend Steve, who is uh, a little younger than me and oh. adores Ghostbusters. He has a Ghostbusters bumper sticker on the car that we that we share. <laughs> you know, like Ghostbusters means a lot to him. And he grew up, you know, dressing up as Ghostbusters Halloween and stuff. And he was born after this movie came mm-hmm. out or right around the time it came out. Whereas I saw it for the first time as a, I believe, 23-year-old, 24-year-old. 
And I wrote about it at the AV Club uh, while we were all there for a feature called Better Late Than Never. And um, I expressed my ambivalence about a, a film that just didn't, it, it spoke to me in fits and starts, but mm-hmm. you know, that there, as I say, I didn't connect to it. And um, <laughs> kind of got a, a preview of some of the internet vitriol that has been spewed over the the new Ghostbusters. It's, it, the only thing me now is weirdly prescient. Yeah, yeah. She's, she's yeah, a, yeah. Uh, Genevieve was the canary in the coal mine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Seriously, and we didn't we didn't take the warning. We didn't realize. Yeah, yeah. W- women do not write bad things about Ghostbusters. We, we destroyed. You know. <laughs> right. But to go back to the Steve example, I asked him like why he connected with Ghostbusters. And he said, for me, it came from watching the movie as a kid when ghost busting seemed like a plausible career route. (laughs) (laughs) I love him. Uh, For for me, it really was, I want to be a ghost buster and live in this world. And also that smart ass guy seems really cool. Mm. Um, Also the uh, cartoon, the real Ghostbusters helped helped a lot for him. Mm -hmm. So what I'm getting at is I think the, the key here might be that for all of, you know, it's ghost blowjobs and Bill Murray Rhinus. This is kind of fundamentally a kid's movie in a lot of ways. And I think that seeing it when you are still a kid or, you know, still have a connection to your your childhood, uh, that maybe it, it, it hits you in that way. So that's my theory. I saw it for the first time as an adult, and that may have been my roadblock. Part of the problem also with seeing anything this beloved as an adult is that you've probably gotten the message over and over that this is the funniest thing of all right. time. And that that is something that I wrote about in that piece and got kind of pilloried for the the idea that nostalgia plays a part. But, you know, here you guys all are talking about seeing it as children, but we don't need to uh, get too much into the n-word uh in, in this conversation but what, what, what uh, nostalgia, nostalgia. <laughs> yes it's yeah. kind of important to clarify that <laughs> it, it, it's political juncture but okay the idea of ghost busting is patently ludicrous and once you start building a mythology around it like adult logic and reason just start throwing up all these roadblocks and i think that maybe what makes it harder to connect to for the first time as an adult. I'm I'm still working on my parapsychology PhD. I I will be a Ghostbuster. Don't deny my dreams. I I believe in you, Tasha. I had had a roommate once who, who, as a freshman, who was exploring different career options in one week. He really was going to pursue parapsychology. (laughs) Did he he see Ghostbusters when he was a kid? I'm I'm going to guess yes. (laughs) More importantly, did he try to hook you up to an electroshock machine and and show you cards? Not while I was awake, no. Though I do, the thing I love about that, that scene is that (laughs) <laughs> the guy actually gets one of the cards right and he shocks him anyway. <laughs> that is uh, a, a classic Bill Murray moment um, among, among many for me in this movie. But I guess, you know, you know, if you talk about this, about Ghostbusters as being a, a movie for younger folks mm-hmm. or, or adolescents. Or I don't want to insinuate that you can't no, no, enjoy no, it for no, the first I, time I, I as mean an that, adult. But I, mean, but, I think, I, but I think it becomes more just, you know, the fantasy, not not just of ghost busting, but also, you know, also the ghost blowjob thing. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of... <laughs> And, and Bill Murray kind of being this this uh, pervy Much. pervy juvenile guy. I mean, like that uh, that all fits too. Yeah. Well, it's. I mean, this movie is scary in a twelve year old way. It's sexual in a twelve year old way. It's uh, sarcastic in a twelve year old way. Like all of these things are kind of aimed at a certain a certain safety point, I guess. Like mm-hmm. they wouldn't challenge too much, like the sexual the, the assumed sexual knowledge of like a twelve year old. There's nothing that graphic in what happens, even though the whole plot centers on two people boinking. Which I only I don't think I realized to watching us as an adult that that actually they did the deed up there. Oh really? Yeah. Oh, I, I was really so. clear on that as a teenager. Yeah. Well, you're a little, you're <laughs> we, old. We, it didn't really even come through on this view. <laughs> we, we, we did just have a conversation that implied that Scott was not aware that that the gatekeeper and the keymaster had a sexual component to their to their names. I don't know how keys work. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to yeah. say this again. When two possessed people love each other very, very much. <laughs> Yeah. Oh boy! Yeah, uh, no. I mean, as a as an adolescent, I was pretty keenly attuned to any hint of innuendo, and I mean, I I thought that that was like hilarious and naughty 
as mm-hmm. a teenager. But we were talking about like sort of the, where it lies in terms of safety. Did you have a further point about that? Yeah, my uh, my five year old just expressed interest in watching it, and and it's kind of like it's more less less the scary stuff, or even the ghost blowjob scene, which I you know whatever it's I can cover her eyes during that part. It's more like sort of the the language I think that would probably keep me away. But if you're twelve, it's the perfect level of uh, profanity. Oh, this man has no dick, right? I mean, that's, uh, yeah, much quoted. <laughs> Much quote it quietly among uh, uh, my friends and I. Uh, so what about now? <laughs> what was it like for to, for you all to revisit it for the show? I really like the movie. It is not the roll on the floor comedy that 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 memory might suggest it is. Mm-hmm. It's really gorgeous looking. Though. I mean, Laszlo Kovacs is a yeah. cinematographer, which yeah. helps a lot. Yeah. It, it may be Ivan Reitman's finest moment as a director. Oh my god, by far. <laughs> <laughs> this is so. Talk about aspirational. This is as this is as high as Ivan Ivan Reitman's career ever got. And the effects were better than I remember them being. Not that I remember them being bad, but it's like they're it's very impressive mm-hmm. visually for a lot of reasons that you were talking about, Tasha. Yeah, and they, they and the effects have just a tremendous amount of charm to them too. Mm-hmm. The, the from from Slimer to uh, the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. That's a great moment. That's a great cinematic. Moment. I mean, but I think what about the dogs? I, I like the dogs because they're because they're like stop motion, right? Yeah, yeah, they're cool. Yeah, no, I like, you don't like the stop motion. I don't mind the herky jerky a little bit. Oh, of they're so jerky dated. Yeah, um, they are super oh, super dated. Flash, flashback to no. last week. <laughs> I, I don't think the problem with the dogs is the stop motion. I think the problem is the way they were matted in. Yeah, the mat lines. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not I'm not a, a big person for a Spielbergian, like going, or, or even more so George Lucas, like going back and messing with the special effects. But I would actually be fine with like a version of Ghostbusters that erases the mat lines around the terror dogs. Yeah, that, that's what I mean when I bring it up. No, that's just the disrupting reality. Yeah. <laughs> the reality really of, of mat lines around demon dogs. <laughs> I, I would be more capable of buying that if so many other movies of the time uh, did not also have that problem. But uh, apparently the special effects were super, super rushed because mm-hmm. the uh, special effects house that was working on them was also working on 2010 at the time. Um, <laughs> they they didn't have a ton of budget to work with. There were there were a lot of special effects and a lot of process shots in this movie and it all kind of came down to the wire on the deadline. So, I mean, they've said that they, they find the uh, effect like a little, especially the terror dogs are a little jerky because they just they didn't have time to put in the kind of time that smooth stop motion takes. Again, it doesn't bother me. I mean, we are we're talking about something that's like a a demonic animal force from another dimension. It doesn't really bother me that they move around in a jerky way, but and eh, the mountain lines are a little distracting sometimes. You know what other movie I loved that summer? 2010. <laughs> I really did. I, I left it thinking this is better than 2001. Were there know. were there mat lines around all the effects? Probably. I don't know. <laughs> were there any recycled terror dogs? <laughs> I, you know, what struck me most uh, uh, on the rewatch, like, I, I, I have to admit, I went into this rewatch cringing a little bit because I haven't revisited Ghostbusters probably 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of movies that I liked when I was young, especially 80s movies, yeah. have a really high cheese factor that's hard to get over these days. And as I say, Bill Murray's smarm has only kind of accreted layers on it for me <laughs> over the years. So I was I was really kind of afraid to revisit this movie. I was afraid of the Genevieve effect. I was afraid of going in and finding out that my nostalgia was completely undeserved. I really enjoyed the charm of this film. Mm-hmm. Like, I think, I'm going to say dated. I think some of the sexual politics of it are kind of dated and really kind of silly. And the performances, which we're going to talk about, I had I had some problems with mm-hmm. sometimes. But the pacing of it, I just find the pacing so perfect. And especially compared with the new Ghostbusters, which we'll get into more next time. But the there's a, like a, almost a leisureliness to this movie outside of the actual action sequences that I just find so charming and relieving. This movie takes time to show you things like the the drifting ghosts, uh, you know, exploding from the building and like slowly spreading over New York. That is one of my favorite shots, favorite moments in any movie. And when the, the music's playing in the background and you're just getting to see like what this looks like from the top down. It, it's so rare for movies to take that kind of time with something these days. Yeah, I mean, the the... the amount of care put into storytelling in in ghostbusters in this in old ghostbusters i guess we'll call it old Guster, oh. Goldbusters and new well, we're, we're going to figure this out uh, but in any case uh, there is a, a lot of care that's put into telling a story and not necessarily having every scene be joke filled just kind of just like let's let's do story first and if there if there are 
you know, character moments that, that involve jokes that could be in there, that's fine. If there are actions that are jokes, then that's fine. Um, but, but it kind of hits you first as a, as a nice piece of storytelling. Also, with a, that looks beautiful, as Keith said, that has a wonderful sense of location. I mean, I think this feels like kind of almost like a PG-rated version of the Taking of Pelham 123, mm. that it's got that kind of, that's such a strong New York attitude to it that I like. Um, and seeing it, the, seeing it again, um, you know, I, it is, you know, I think it's a good film. I, I'm not really, I don't love it, but I think the first like 30 or 40 minutes are fantastic. <laughs> uh, I think it just, it just sets up the story so well. And, and uh, you know, a lot of my favorite lines are in that, in that part. It's just, you know, I think it, maybe towards the end, it kind of gets lost in, in effects and trying to get, trying to just resolve all of the mess that it's sort of made. But, uh, but even then you have the state of marshmallow man and that sort of thing. Anyway, uh, I'm but babbling. You also kind of have the, the, just the heroism, the, the fact that it, it kind of takes time to establish that these people have become heroes to, a city and you know as kind of losers they suck it up they love it and we we take maybe a little more time with that than we need but i like that we take time with it at all i love that we make time to spend uh to spend a time listening to ray and winston talking about biblical prophecy in the end of the world and kind of bonding a little over their worldview you know there's just there's so many quiet moments in this film that I are like really good a lot too yeah that, that, that holds up really really well yeah i mean i guess maybe it's a sign of the times as well that that you didn't necessarily have to to rush anything or feel like you have to, you know people need to be like you know uh entertained in a certain way or or you know jostled at all times uh so it does it has a it has a pleasant you know it, leisurely is not quite the word but but close close to that is what as close as uh, blockbuster can be to, to leisurely I, I just want to point out that like the way that you guys are describing this is like charming and leisurely it is like so uh, antithetical to what i was led to believe ghostbusters was when mm-hmm. i saw it for the first time and it, i was expecting this laugh out loud roll on the floor comedy which as you say it, it is not for a lot of it so when I rewatched it this time, I guess I liked it about as much as I liked it the first time I saw it, which was kind of, you know. There, is there it, anything it ha- specific that it's that that it is missing for you, or is it? Or um, like, can you put your finger on it? Yes, I kind of don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't like Peter Venkman. Aww. I don't. I he is not a, a character that I feel any connection to or affinity toward or. Or love for. I mean, he's kind of a creep. And I like Bill Murray just fine in other contexts, but like his particular brand of smarm just doesn't sit well with me, especially when he's posited as a romantic lead. You know, I'll, I'll walk that back. I don't like the Peter Dana stuff. And I don't like that there is this like weird, creepy romance inserted into the middle of this. And I do like that New Ghostbusters avoids that entirely. Um, which you could probably get into some gendered reasons for that, but let's just say they realized it didn't work in the first one, so they <laughs> left it out in the new one. Um, but yeah, like Peter's pursuit of Dana in the film is my my least favorite element of that character, and it seems like the only reason it's there is because like eighties movie convention calls for it. I suppose I, I feel like she's so resistant and. He basically has to save the world for her to to give into his charms, such as they are. Uh, to me, I, I think that if if she were a little more easily won over, I would find it a little more troubling. Um, but uh, but I don't know. but he wins her over before saving the world. He wins her over, I guess, by being famous, which is like I don't think he wins her over at he, all. She agrees to go on a date. She agrees yeah. to yeah. But we've already kind of seen her do the uh, all right. I'm willing to be a nice girl, and she also wants him over to solve her her problem. I mean, yeah. she's really clear about that. One of the things that, like, I, I, I absolutely feel you on this. I think he's, he's a creep and he's, uh, like, a bit of a blowhard. And here's the big thing for me. He doesn't have any function on that team. Like, he's, he's a parapsychologist. They make it really clear up front that he considers science to be a scam that will help him get through life. Like, he doesn't really do anything for the team except push Ray into taking out a third mortgage. And <laughs> which is great, it, which is a funny bit because he, cause he, he didn't even argue him down from 19%. <laughs> that's, like my fun, that's one of the funniest lines in the movie. But he just, he doesn't have, he doesn't, he's not a contributor. Um, yeah, I, I don't mind that he's 
a creep. I mind that like the movie seems to be wanting me to admire him for being a creep, and I'm not willing to do that. And I don't think it does because of the way Dana sees him. I mm-hmm. just she is she's not just resistant. She has his number from like two minutes into their meeting. And yeah. one of the things I enjoyed most about rewatching this is just the way. I mean, she takes one look at him and puts him in the same box as little Rick Moranis. Just <laughs> no way, no way, never get over it and she just keeps pushing him away and even in the end when she kisses him if you watch her she is the the kiss that she gives him is not you know come to me you great big hunk of a world saving man it's all right you've earned i guess this peck on the lips that you're forcing on me she keeps her mouth closed like nothing about her face says rapture she's just like all right fine a peck on the lips and we're and i bet you anything that after that she's like yeah okay we're done I don't know. I haven't seen Ghostbusters too. She, oh, she, that's, she's that's, not addressed there. Oh, is that's she? actually a really good point. I, don't, I have I've, no memory. I haven't of that seen at all. it since theaters. Oh Maybe boy, it's, it's not, rough. Yeah, it's unlike. Um, <laughs> well, okay. Let me defend Peter Venkman because that is my favorite character and uh, performance in the movie. Um, <laughs> that was that was that a weird like like a stomach thing? No, no, that, that was ooh. As in, okay, I, 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 I thought this. it was this like I good. thought it was like uh, I just okay. Um, no, that was not me throwing up. In my well, mouth here's my here's the thing that really really came out for me on this viewing is that this is Bill Murray doing Groucho Marx uh, mm-hmm. and and if in that context that makes Sigourney Weaver Marguerite Dumont <laughs> and so it's okay that she finds him ridiculous and and uh, and that his attempts to woo her are uh, absurd and uh, constantly re- rejected because that is that is the dynamic and uh, and I just think he is this 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 gesture on the edge of on the edge of this narrative that that keeps it that just keeps it fun. I mean, I think this. I think he's he's got all the funny lines. He's got you know, no human would stack books that way. And I mean, like <laughs> I, mean, I, I agree that he has the funny lines. He has and, he's got the funny lines, he, and he's got an attitude that that is I think critical to the film's success. I, I don't. I mean, I I, I love Bill Murray, so it's unambiguously. So maybe that's that's part of it. This but is the Bill Murrayest Bill Murray too. It, it really it really is. I, and I liked having that level of commentary. And um, there's a scene that that where you know they're outside of the orchestra hall. Uh, you know where Bill Bill Murray meets her. Just it, it was such a Groucho moment where it's where you know he tells her that she's the best one in a row and she's like you know most people can't hear me with your orchestra playing he goes i don't have to take this abuse i got hundreds of people dying to abuse me and it's just that is such a groucho line (laughs) particularly the way murray delivers it i think if you look at that you know i mean if you look at the grouch the marx brothers movies and groucho's role in them you know you know there are you know duck soup is about war you know horse feathers is about college and football and this sort of thing and uh his level of engagement in the action is is similar to bill murray's in this one in that he's not really part of the team he is outside of it he is he's commenting on it he's making jokes about it and so we connect with him in that way he's he's irreverent and uh, i think the movie needs that and benefits from it it's essential to it and um yeah, it's, it remains one of my f- favorite things about it. I, I mean, I absolutely agree that the movie needs it. I'm I'm definitely not saying like this should be a movie without Venkman. Nor am I. Yeah, I, I mean, he, yeah, he works. I, I think it's possible though to to watch this movie and enjoy this movie and like love all of his his wacky lines delivered in his wacky Bill Murray way without connecting with the character in any kind of personal way. Oh no, but and, but I mean, you wouldn't connect with Groucho either. But, yeah, but there is no other character I connect with either. And maybe that is I because I, I, going back to, you know, how Steve said he liked that there was like the smart ass guy that everyone thought was cool. Like he connected with that character. Mm-hmm. If you don't connect with Peter, there's not a lot of other options. Well, he's the yeah, he's the he's the heart of the, the movie. Lead. And if you're not into right. the heart, I mean, of the it, movie. you know, I think there's a more democratic quality to to new Ghostbusters mm-hmm. or new Busters, as we're going to call it, <laughs> um, than there is to uh to Ghostbusters where it is pretty much the Bill Murray show but there are other characters in this movie are there not there are other characters in this movie I mean to me this is a movie one of the things that's so interesting about Ghostbusters is how it's structured you know the villain there's no human villain here and there's no arc for any of the characters nobody really learns anything they kind of go from zero to hero but they don't really develop as people along the way this is not like a learning experience and it's not 
really about most of the characters. It's barely even about Venkman. Like he's front and center because he's a comedian saying a lot of comedic lines. But really this movie is about a process of bizarre things happening in an episodic way. And it's just, I, I think it's really unusually structured and that's part of what makes it stand out. And I think that's part of why it stood out at the time too, that, you know, there is sort of a zero to hero arc, but it is not a, a formulaic film uh, in many ways. It was an unusual comedy at the time. And I would say it's still kind of an unusual comedy and that a lot of attempts to replicate it haven't turned out so well. I mean, Men in Black was pretty good, but I mean, you know, much of the same crew, um, you know, or at least Reitman and kind of the similar concept was, was behind Evolution. Oh. Remember Evolution? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you don't. Or my super ex, <laughs> my super ex-girlfriend, oh, my super which, which misogyny girlfriend. level is just on a whole, <laughs> like that's stratospheric. Oh, my super ex-girlfriend. Don't yeah. even talk about it. Yeah. So so I, I think it's it's still kind of a standout movie in, in that way, too. And it does have that, as, she's, as, as we pointed out, sort of leisurely pacing that I think it's part of what makes it worse. Like one of my favorite, although it ends with that, we keep coming back to it. It ends with a disastrous uh, blowjob thing. Um, I love that this one of the best montage sequences, uh, you know, in eighties comedies, right? You know, the, with all the different covers and it switches to the Atlantics and the politics mm-hmm. of ghost busting at the end. And it's just, it's just everything is a, uh, and you know, you get Larry King smoking a cigarette on the radio. It's, it's uh, uh, the smoking is really random in this movie. Yeah. It's like everyone has to smoke once just because, but you don't get the sense that any of them are smokers. But Dan Aykroyd has to smoke just so he can do the, the cigarette, cigarette on the lid thing. Yeah. Which is, oh, which is yeah, a pretty good special effect if, or, or, or feat of uh, feat of human accomplishment, whichever. It's, it's a feat of human accomplishment. I, lo- oh, <laughs> yeah, I, it, I, I really love that whole sequence in the ho- hotel. Like they actually the planned it, buddy. but they didn't like glue it to his lip or anything. Mm. He just, apparently he just licked it and stuck it on his face. Yeah, just, and th- I mean that, and that sequence in particular, again, reminded when I flash back to, you know, much earlier brand of, of comedy is like, like, uh, Abbott and Costello mm. meet Frankenstein. It's got, it's got those, you know, with, I guess, Aykroyd in this case in the, in the Costello role. And I, I just f- found that totally delightful, uh, then and now. Yeah. I can't, I got to push back on the Margaret Dumont thing. Cause I just, I don't feel like Dana is enough of either a, a no, stuffed she, she's shirt smarter. Or, or clueless, yes. but I, it is kind of interesting to see. I mean, if we've got, if we've got Abbott and uh, Groucho Marx in the same movie together. Now, I'm, I'm a little curious because you could almost look at Egon and see Harold Lloyd. But I mean, the, just the idea of like cramming all these classic comedy things together. I, I absolutely do believe that that's something Dan Aykroyd would do in writing. We, so the one person we have not talked about is Winston. <laughs> what's, the, what, what's, what's the story with that character, do you think? Well, you can find a lot of like Ernie Hudson has been very open about the fact. And this is, oh, this is so distressing. He's very nice about it in interviews, but it's obviously something that's haunted his life. Dan Aykroyd wrote that that role with Eddie Murphy in mind. He wanted to work with Eddie Murphy again, and Eddie Murphy wasn't interested. And But the, the script that had the 175-page, the three-hour mm-hmm. script that, uh, that he actually originally put out there, in that version, apparently Winston Zedmore was there from the beginning. He was, he sounds a lot like uh, Falcon from the MCU. He was an Air Force major. He was a demolitions expert. <laughs> he had all of this background and that was the the script that they gave to ernie hudson when they asked him if he would do the film like he already had sci-fi movie credentials at that point and he read the script and was like this is a terrific character he showed up for his first day on the set and they gave him the rewrites and he doesn't show up until halfway through the film and his one of his biggest moments in the film is saying if it comes with a steady paycheck i will believe anything you want and he was (laughs) he was gutted I mean, he he walked into what he thought was going to be a career changing thing, and it, it it turned him into a footnote. And it's it's honestly really tragic. I'm really sad now. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry to bring you to bring you down on this. And he has said a lot of. I really recommend reading Ernie Hudson interviews because he's he is a smart, good guy, that, and he he talks openly about the fact that like he. He's like, if it if it was racism, like I don't want to dwell on that. I he has taught his kids that you can't use it was racism as a an excuse or a way to feel anything particular about anything that happens to you. He was just like, you know, whatever it was, I had to I had to move on. I had to have a career. I had to feel good about this. And apparently, like he really loved the three other guys, and they were awesome to him. So. 
one of the things I was also addicted to the the real Ghostbusters cartoon. And one of the things I liked about it was he was a full member of the team. He was a real character, which, quite frankly, he isn't here. Although, again, I do love that moment in the car where he talks about revelations with Ray and he he gets some real character of his own. So what do you think what I assume was the thing where the, you know, the script was like going to be three hours that the movie was going to be three hours for and then they wanted Eddie Murphy, Eddie Murphy. That was basically where they said this this is where we're going to cut we're just going to cut everything yeah apparently apparently the studio came back to Aykroyd was like we've got Bill Murray we want Bill Murray like we want him front and center we want him to have the best lines we Mm. want this script to focus on him and they pared down a lot of stuff that wasn't Bill Murray and Winston Zedmore got a lot of the acts so I I wanted to get into the politics of this movie, which are very 80s. Uh, Peter Suderman wrote a piece in Vox where he talked about Ghostbusters as being you know a conservative film uh, that champions entrepreneurship against the hassles of government regulation. Uh, do you think there's something to that? You know, with the EPA character and that sort of thing. Yeah, you know, I, this, I, is, this was a very Reagan movie. And it's it's one of those movies that I think conservative types like to like to claim as their own. I think that's a pretty an argument can be made. I, I was um, it struck me that I'm getting older. I don't think I'm getting more. Cons- I don't think I seem more or less conservative that as I get older and I watch this film, it's like, hey, that EPA guy kind of has a point. You know, this, <laughs> this, this, this is this is not. This should be a little more regulated. I think I think big government should step in at this point. <laughs> um, that said, he he is he is a jerk and he has has no dick. Um, but uh, I have um, heard that about him. Yeah, but it is very much a 80s success story in some ways, isn't it? I will say, though, if you're going to regulate the, the ghost-busting <laughs> industry, um, I, I think you really have to be a little more careful than just shutting down the That's true. Unit. Sure. No, no, the, the implementation was, was way <laughs> no, was, was right. botched. Right. So it's a little unfair. It's a little unfair. <laughs> And it's kind of, I mean, it, it is kind of telling that when Walter Peck comes in, like, there's a big switch there that will turn the thing off. He wants the thing off. He will not do it himself. He orders the cop to do it. He orders the maintenance guy to do it. And he threatens them both. And he threatens the Ghostbusters, but he won't do it himself. He's got to make a flunky do it. And he, effectively, he's trying to make a flunky take responsibility for it. Yeah, I mean, I liked that piece by by Peter. And he also pointed out the cynicism of the line where Peter Venkman tells the mayor, you'll be saving the lives of millions of registered voters. Like it's, you know, I mean, it's a very Venkman line, but it's also a, a little bit of a, a tweak there, I think, to the political system as well. Make, making an EPA guy the villain is a pretty, uh, that's a statement, I think, for sure. And, and it really, I mean, this is right. This is right in the middle of the Reagan 80s, so uh, definitely a movie of its time. So so what about, just to, to wrap this up, You know, do, do we have any favorite lines or moments from the film, Genevieve? Favorite lines, I mean, I, I guess I'll give it up for Ray when someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes. Um, <laughs> but as far as like favorite moments or whatever, I really love the opening scene in the library and just kind of the the anticipation and the the way it holds back it just it, and obviously all the practical effects like it, it's it's a great kind of scene setting and, and the fact that it doesn't have any actual ghostbusters in it you know I, I don't i don't know what that means but i just i, I love the way that scene ends and the theme song comes mm-hmm. up and the logo you know it's just it's a really really nice entree into the movie uh, yeah, the this, this setting really matters. In fact, my if I I'll just go ahead and go because uh, my my favorite might be the second library scene when they actually uh, investigate and and, tr- and see mm. see the ghost for the first time and and have uh, different approaches for how to, <laughs> to to deal with it and end up uh, you know getting getting uh, uh, you know running out of the place and uh, it's a uh, it is. Uh, the use of locations in the, this, this movie is so strong. I mean, it's such a New York film, and uh, you know, the library was a big part of that. I just I love the moments where the story drops away, and we find ourselves listening to the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. I really I thank uh, you for bringing this up. I own, I own the soundtrack, and I listened to it a lot, and mm-hmm. like listening to these songs come up again and again. And I mean, you've got to give it out for the the original, uh, you know, Ray Parker Jr.'s actual like theme, mm-hmm. which is insanely catchy. And I've been walking around talking about how busting makes me feel good since about two weeks before New Busters opened, and I'm ready to stop now. 
now. Everyone loves it except for Huey Lewis. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But like some of these other songs, like I really do love the um, Mick Spiley's I Believe It's Magic um, and that moment, which mm-hmm. I called out, which is my favorite thing in the film. Um, but also Cleaning Up the Town and Saving the Day. Like both of these moments where we just kind of get to see them doing what they do while we're listening to the lyrics. That's just, it's such an 80s thing. Mm-hmm. And it gets me every single time. I love it. I thought you were talking about the score, which I think is, is really, really great. And, Albert and, and, Bernstein, and right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and apparently kind of taking a similar approaches for Animal House where like a serious score kind of heightens the, the comedy. Like it, the, the, the music isn't there telling you it's funny. That really stood out to me in this viewing. And I, I really like the score. I was going to say anything that Rick Moranis does because we mm-hmm. haven't talked about him yet. Oh, yeah, but true. I mean, I think he gives Murray a run for his money in terms of just funny moments. And, and uh, some of it, one thing I really like is the, the party chatter where he's just going on about <laughs> how someone has a small carpet cleaning business and receivership <laughs> and they only have so much left on their mortgage. So they're okay. So they're okay. <laughs> <laughs> just, and, yeah. And yeah, I love that character. And do you realize the, the, the party sequence was pretty much entirely him improvising? Uh, it doesn't surprise me at all. It's, <laughs> it's a very SCTV uh, scene in many ways. You know, it's Did just, you know that, that that role was given to John Candy and he walked off on it? Hmm, no, I didn't actually. He, You're he, a font of Ghostbusters oh, trivia. I've been reading, well, there are so many oral histories of Ghostbusters out there because it hit its 30-year anniversary. Right. So I read a bunch of those. John Candy was, was cast in that role and they shot some of it, but he wanted that cake. <laughs> try to imagine this. He wanted Lewis to have a couple of schnauzers and a strong German accent. <laughs> and Reitman was just like, no, that this just really doesn't fit with what I want to do at all. And Candy walked off. He quit. So they brought Moranis in. Actually, I think I'm lying about having shot it. I think uh, it was it was right before shooting was going to start. They brought in Moranis like as a last minute replacement. And he came in and he said, I've got this geek thing I want to do. <laughs> and like his his whole conception of who Lewis was is what we see in the movie. And he actually uh, he has he's not credited as one of the script writers, but he's considered to be a like a contributing script writer because he wrote so much of his own character's lines. Yeah, and, and, and it's really funny, but it's also kind of afraid got him typecast a little bit because he kind of played variations of that character for the rest of his career. And obviously he, he looks the part, he does it very well, but I mean, he's watching with SCTV, he's got so much more range than we ever really saw in the movies. And he he's so much a nerd of a particular time. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, now the, I'm trying to imagine the pants, John the Candy. Pants are never, yeah. The pants are always too too short, even well, he's, and, not, Andy, he's not that big a guy. And Andy loses the great visual of him next to Sigourney Weaver. Yeah, you know? and I mean, can you imagine the Keymaster Gatekeeper scene where she grabs him and dips him yeah. and smooches him like that would not work with John Candy <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, well with that <laughs> we will uh, talk more uh, Ghostbusters in the second half uh, but right now we'll be right back with some listener feedback on our previous episodes Now it's time for listener feedback. Our last show on Suspiria and the Neon Demon got so many fantastic responses from listeners that we're going to have trouble covering it all here. Tasha and I argued a bit over the sequence in Suspiria where Argento breaks dramatically, and from Tasha's perspective, confusingly, from Susie's perspective to show Pat, another student, get murdered in an apartment building. The full email is up on Facebook, but Tasha, could you read this excerpt? Sure. This is from listener Foxy. I'm a big-time Argento fan, at least of his string of work before 1990, and even I'm reticent to give him too much credit for masterminding this confusion, because there's plenty of stuff in his movies that makes no darn sense at all. But of all his movies, the two which make the most productive use of his inclination towards absurdity are this one and Deep Red. Deep Red is ostensibly a murder mystery with an official villain and a solution, but it creates instead a sense that we've seen something truly unfathomable. Suspiria is ground zero for this tendency in Argento's work. Because Argento leaves just enough loose threads dangling in Suspiria, this failure to resolve even basic questions leaves a menacing void sitting at the heart of this film, a void that the final sequence fails to dispel. We're shown a hairy arm, glowing cat eyes, a black-gloved hand, a caped figure in high heels stalking and dispatching victims, yet none of these features actually match the witch once she appears. I'm inclined to think this is Argento acting on inspired instinct more than anything. What is the deal with the creepy housekeeper and the mute boy? What meat are they chopping in the kitchen? What 
what's the deal with the bat attack? Suspiria and Deep Red are the two Argento films where these patent absurdities are transmuted into real strengths, which is why the final sequence can never truly satisfy. What could after a buildup like that? <laughs> That's a good point. And, and, and weirdly enough, not one I even thought about uh, until until we got the, this, this email. I think you just accept it and uh, you know the explanation that maybe... Uh, this is just you know his instinct that he's a- acting on, and maybe that's 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 a good instinct. I, ha- I have to admit that for me, I like I didn't question most of this stuff because witches, man. Like <laughs> a bat is attacking you, a witch sent it. A demon is attacking you, a witch sent it. I, there's somebody in high heels, people hovering outside windows, whatever. Witches, man. Like I, I didn't question these things not fitting together because it seemed that it was House just manifestations of, of evil yeah, magic. Okay. Um, so we were all left flummoxed over the necrophilia scene in the Neon Demon, and a couple of listeners wrote us with smart interpretations about what Nicholas Winding Refn was thinking. Keith, why don't you read us one of them? This is from a listener named Stephen in London. I was surprised when you also roundly dismissed the necrophilia scene. Apart from presenting a thrilling set piece in itself, my feeling is that this ends up as a key plank in the narrative unfolding of the film. The Neon Demon builds our sense of its world gradually. Granted, we learn very early on that this is an occulted realm of prowling beasts and creeping disquiet, but of the various figures around our main character, Jesse, Jenna Malone's Ruby seems alone to be acting on motives that might not be entirely calculating. Indeed, she operates for much of the film as a point of light in an otherwise dark terrain. This is why Ruby's worried reaction to the photographer Jack is so important, even though it ends up making little sense as a genuine expression of worry, given what we come to learn later about Ruby. It suggests to the viewer that at least some degree of moral culpability exists in the Neon Demon's world. It's not until Ruby reacts so aggressively to Jesse's re- rejection of her advances that we start to see Ruby as part and parcel with the film's denuded moral landscape. But it's the necrophilia scene that really pushes her and our sense of where the film is going over the edge. The necrophilia in this sense serves to escalate the intensity of the film as spectacle and also acts as vital thematic tissue. The shard of ruby light is now fully blocked up, and we're launched viscerally into the surreal horror of the final 15-20 minutes of the film. The necrophilia scene, in my viewing at least, therefore represents an escalation that is entirely necessary for the larger dramatic contours of the film, in terms equally of character, theme, and emotion. Anyway, that was my reaction. Clearly, you all don't agree. But it is persuasive, though. I that it is a turning point, and it is, uh, it is sort of when Ruby kind of tips her hand as to who, who she is, at least to the viewers. That being said, it is, uh, by my estimation, mean, 30 straight minutes of, uh, of Ruby having sex <laughs> with a corpse. I don't know. I don't know. This is a very good <clears throat> argument as to why it belongs in the film, and yet I, I can't say it doesn't still feel... Um, excessive in some ways. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I it's a good email and, and thought provoking, and I think if you and it gets gets you thinking, I guess about the overall sort of architecture of the film, rather than thinking about Ruby as as a character and how and, you know and why are we spending time with her when this seems to be Jesse's movie, right? And so uh, this maybe makes a little bit more more sense um, because otherwise it makes no sense. So I'm happy that there's at least this explanation to cling to. Sure. I mean, I like this letter. It what it makes me think of, I guess, is the idea that I kind of put forward that this movie is about people turning themselves into objects. I kind of feel like th- this letter basically sparked me thinking about the way Ruby is interacting with this corpse, which is very literally an object, and it doesn't put her off. It doesn't bother her. And that might be sort of a clue for how she deals with other people later. She Like all of the people around her are turning themselves into objects. She's turning a, an object into a person. Well, we have one more letter from uh, about Neon Demon. This is from listener Melissa. Again, we have this in full on our Facebook page because this is like an essay. Uh, <laughs> uh, Melissa had a, a really, I think, remarkable interpretation of the symbolic value of the mountain lion that appears in Jesse's motel room in the Neon Demon. Genevieve, want to read a fairly large chunk of it for us? <laughs> sure. Melissa writes, I wanted to propose a theory relative to the mountain lion in Neon Demon in terms of its thematic significance. I think you are onto something in the parallel to cat people, particularly as in that film, the cat is a literal manifestation of the voracious and untamed in a woman. And I believe something similar is going on in Refn's film. The mountain lion serves as an interesting focal point for our developing understanding of Jesse's character. Initially, we see the cat as representative of the ominous outside threats she faces when she comes to L.A., a terrifying other, if you will. 
The cat suddenly appears in the seedy, creepy hotel she's staying in, and she is forced to get outside help, notably from the also seedy and creepy male hotel manager, to fight this wild animal threat off. Interestingly, the manager accuses her of destroying the room and of essentially bringing the cat in with her. She is forced to take responsibility for the damages. And it seems to us at that point in the story ludicrous that Jesse should be blamed for the catty damage to her room. But as the film continues, we increasingly see Jessie as less and less innocent, rather as predatory as the cat found in her room. There are very specific cat-like motions she makes. Once in her room, for example, we see her stretching her legs luxuriously. It's just her legs in the frame. And in the scene with the photographer who asks her to strip, she stretches her neck in another luxurious action, basking in the attention of the photographer rather than being threatened by him. She's got a catty coolness in the end, even if we initially think she's under threat from the man. The final shift, though, where I think the perception of Jesse shifts from innocent prey of men to predator, is in the diner scene with the designer, a scene that comes directly after Jesse discovers her inner triangle and kisses her mirror image passionately on the catwalk. There, the designer is provoking the women into competition with each other, and we see Jesse, at the end of that scene, manifests the shift from soft, innocent figure to a cold competitor who is happy to flaunt her natural it-girl factor in the face of the plastics of the other models. After that point, it's pretty certain we have as much to fear from her as we might have from the men or other women in the film. The men we once perceived as a threat to her have been essentially neutralized. Uh, yeah, and this this letter has a big beginning to it and and an end to it as well, so that you can see on Facebook and it, it is in full a really fantastic argument. But you get the I guess the the gist of it here. This uh, is a dissolve essay. It like, really this is. is. This is a, a, a piece, like a, a publishable piece. Yeah. I love that people are sending in feedback. Like all three of these letters I just really love in yeah. terms of their the way they engage with the film and the way they they really like dissect some of the themes, which, you know, Refn is not necessarily spelling anything out for people. It, it requires this level of analysis. Well, and I will, I will say, too, that in the case of Argento and especially of Refn and this film, that there are critics will just dismiss them as just trash mm. and not worth any consideration whatsoever. And it was it's nice to see really specific things, you know, particularly about the Neon Demon, uh, the uh, the mountain lion and the necrophilia scene that are were given this close a consideration. I just I like to see people trying to make sense of the world. Yes. So as always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In the second half, the women will do the ghost busting. Thank you very much. Look for that later this week. Or, better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, I'm having a big party for all my clients. And even though you do your own tax returns, which you shouldn't do, I'd like you to stop by. Okay.